of Revelation, as Andrew started it last week, uh, just to remind you, we're not going through the whole book. We're just going to hit on uh, the seven letters to the seven churches. And uh, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the church um, that was in Smyrna. Okay, so we've got a couple maps here. So if you want to bring up that first map, would be great. I think it was the one that Andrew used last week. So these are the seven churches that we're talking about. Um, Last week, Andrew talked about Ephesus, um, and then uh, Ephesus was a port city, but Smyrna is another port city that sort of rivals Ephesus. Uh, It's it's a very large city uh, and sits right there uh, on the Aegean Sea. Um, And then, uh, is there another, do I have another? Oh, there's a picture of it, right? We have a picture of... Smyrna, I think. So this is, this is a, a drawing, a rendering of, of what it would look like from atop the hill looking down out into the, uh, to the port city of Smyrna. So let me read to you just real quick so you get a flavor. This is from a commentary that I have. I thought it put it in words that I couldn't come up with any better. But it says, The city of Smyrna is located on an arm of the Aegean Sea and was a rival of Ephesus. It claimed to be the first city of Asia in beauty and size. A gloriously picturesque city, it sloped up from the sea and its splendid public buildings onto the rounded top of the hill Pagos formed what was known as the crown of Smyrna. The westerly breeze, the zephyr, comes from the sea and blows through every part of the city, rendering it fresh and cool even during the summer. From the very beginning of Rome's rise to power, even before its days of greatness, Smyrna was its loyal ally and was recognized as such by Rome. The faithfulness and loyalty of the Smyrnians became proverbial. So let's read uh, this passage. Um, We're going to read Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11. It'll be on the screen. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, again these are the words of Jesus just so you know. This is Jesus writing a letter to these churches. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Excuse me. He who hasn't... Where am I? Okay. Yes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, given us your word. um, That you have spoken these words to uh, the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, in their particular context. But Father, uh, as we learn from the words that you speak to them, we understand that you speak to us as well. That you speak to Spring Run Presbyterian Church. Uh, You speak life to us. You speak good news. And you give us hope in a culture that seems hopeless. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um... There's, there's a pattern in Scripture sometimes that can help us understand 
certain passages. This is not always true, but it's one that I've found to be kind of helpful in different ways. And, um, and it kind of helps us understand the passage and then learn to, to apply it to our lives. So the pattern involves asking three questions. You can test this out uh, on your own on some other passages as well. Here's the three questions. Who is God? Who am I? And what am I called to do? Okay? So I think, as you know, or heard me speak or teach more often, um, I'm really big on not just moving from the text to application really quick because that helps us, that, when we do that, when we move from text to application immediately, we've missed uh, this giant hole in our Bible study called the gospel, and it's the gospel message. And the gospel message is central because God is central to every passage. Jesus is central. His redeeming power is central to every message. me, every passage in the Bible. So we're gonna we're gonna walk through this passage with these three questions: Who is God? Who am I? Based on who God is, and what am I called to do? Based on who God has made me. Okay, so it all goes back to lifting up God and Him being the central figure in every passage. So I, th- I think the letter to the seven churches, because I read through them all uh, as well, follows this pattern, as well as a couple other patterns w- which we get to. But it will be helpful for us to learn and grow and be transformed by it. And as Andrew mentioned last week, that often we talk about how the Bible is meant not to just inform us with knowledge, but to transform us by the power of the message, which is the gospel. So it's, it is information that leads to transformation. So we're going to look at this brief letter to the Smyrnians, the Christians in Smyrna, uh, and ask these three questions. Who is God? And um, the, the first answer is going to be that God, Jesus is God. He's the redeemer and conqueror. Who am I? I'm known and loved by Jesus. We're going to see that in this passage. And then what am I called to do? I am called not to fear, but to flourish. So let's start with the first one. Who is God? Jesus is God in the flesh. We know that. We've, we've just spent the last couple months celebrating that, right? Um, Jesus is the redeemer and conqueror, which we're going to see here in this passage. Because Jesus says this about himself. Jesus says, I am the first and the last who died and came to life. So what does it mean that when Jesus says, I am the first and the last? Well, Jesus is identifying himself as the eternal redeemer who has conquered death by rising from the grave. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So, just to, I know you probably know this already, but Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is saying, I'm on both ends. I cover all time. It's all about me. I oversee everything that exists. Here are just a few other passages of scripture that that, uh, tell of how Jesus is the redeemer and the conqueror. Revelation 21, uh, let's see, Revelation 21, 6 that we're going to, we're not going to get to because we're not going to read the whole book, but um, if you were to make the connection, you would see this. And he said to me, it is done. This is Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Jesus makes these statements about who he is. And then in Colossians 1, 15 to 23, 
It's a familiar passage to some of you. It's one of my favorite passages that speaks to us about the character of Jesus, okay, and and his power. So I want to read this to you. It's not on the screen. Don't worry, in the booth. Um, Jesus, uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's awesome. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So it's, it's telling us that there is no one else greater, nothing else. No one else and nothing else greater and more powerful than Jesus. He is the gracious and merciful king and father of all who put their faith in him. No one else has risen from the dead to supremely rule over the universe. Right? Jesus is the redeemer and the conqueror. And the reason that this is just more than just good information is that this knowledge informs us of the power of Jesus. And Jesus uses this power. Okay, listen to this. Jesus uses this power to watch over us, sustain us, preserve us, guard us, protect us, Redeem us from the penalty of our sins and conquer our greatest enemy, which is death. It should give you the confidence to know that Jesus is taking care of you. That's one of the big things, I think, that come out of this passage. For us to know that Jesus is taking care of us. He was taking care of the believers in Smyrna. Let's take a look real quick because that leads us to our second point. That we are, who are we? We are known and loved by Jesus. We are known and loved by Jesus. So in verse 9, Jesus says to the Christians in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. You see, first of all, Jesus lets the Christians in Smyrna know that he sees and cares about their suffering and the persecution that they were facing and undergoing. And I am sure that the church in Smyrna, was, were, they were crying out to God, asking him to stop this persecution, to take it away. I, I can only imagine asking him to help. And his answer comes partly in the form of this letter. Where he says, I know what you are going through. I can see it happening. I'm with you in it. 
And then Jesus gives them a heads up that the suffering and persecution is going to get worse. Probably not the answer the church wanted. But it's the truth. Jesus is a truth teller. He even goes on to warn them that some will be put in prison and some will even die for their faith. We need to take comfort in knowing that Jesus has also experienced what we are going through. Jesus was persecuted. He was slandered. He was beaten and killed. Jesus experienced all these things and more. You know, when you're going through this, it's the one who has been through what you have been through, that is the person who's best to come and help comfort you, right? When you're going through something really difficult in your life, it's the person that comes to you that's been through the same thing that's best to comfort you. And I cannot tell you how often the following scenario plays out in my life. I find myself discouraged, hurt, angry, or sad. And so what do I do? Well, I have friends, I have family, my wife. Often they will encourage me, right? But it will be an encouragement with Jesus is for you. Jesus is here with you, right? And I also go to the scriptures to seek help. And Jesus is always there to help me. He always gives me the right words and the right passages. And a lot of times it's 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 the right psalm for some reason. God uses the Psalms for me that helps me work through my issue and heal my soul in some way. And uh, it was just this morning as I woke up trying to mentally and spiritually prepare for the day. Have you ever woken up and you're like, ah another day. Okay, I gotta get ready for this. Lord, I'm not sure. And I read this passage in Psalm 148.8. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. I thought, that's it. That's what I'm supposed to do. Lift up my soul to him right now. Encourage me to get out of bed and move forward in confidence. So knowing Jesus redeems and conquers and that he knows and he loves us. So what are we called to do? What are we called to do in in light of these things and who God's made us and what's going on around us? Well, I think from the passage, we are called not to fear but to flourish through faithfulness. And Michelle Conrad reminded me a couple months ago when she gave her uh, testimony, uh, gospel story, that the phrase, do not fear, occurs 365 times in the Bible. So could could it be one for every day? Could God be making a point? I believe he is. I believe he does. God tells his people not to fear, even in the face of death. But, but, but how can he expect that of us? How can God expect us to not fear in the face of death? Death is our worst enemy. 
Or is it? That's the question I think we have to ask. Is death really our worst enemy? I think we put way more value on our 90 plus years here on this earth than we do on the eternal years that we will spend face to face with Jesus. We put way, way more value on this brief period of time that we have. Listen to what the scriptures say about our life here. Again, we go back to the word of God who tells us the truth. I need my glasses here. James four thirteen and 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's how the scriptures talk about your 90 plus years here on this earth. That should sober us to think about what we're spending our time and our money and our resources on here in this life. Psalm 39 says something similar. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Because they have been measured here on this earth. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And then, if you notice, um, I know we don't have it on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, Psalm 39, and you read this in the Psalms, right? There's this little word called selah, S-E-L-A-H, that comes after certain phrases or verses in your Bible, in the Psalms. We're not completely sure what the, what the word means, but it, most, uh, most scholars agree that it, it means pause and meditate on what you just read, Right? Just take a deep breath, go back, read it again, pray it again, sing it again. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And then he goes on to say, Surely a man goes about as a shadow, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Isn't that the story of our life? Are we going to spend our lives just gathering and storing and building up everything that we have? We don't even know what's going to happen to it afterwards. We need to put our lives into perspective. And I think that's one of the encouragements that um, Jesus was trying to give to the Christians who are being persecuted in Smyrna. We fear losing what we have in this life. And if the world gave it to you, then the world can take it away. But if God gave it to you, then only God can take it away. And if he does, then it must be for a good reason. Whether we understand that reason or not. Most of the times, I don't understand that reason. The Christians in Smyrna were losing material possessions possibly employment, or even their homes. 
These things, uh, the world could take away from them. The world could take away these things. But they were also facing the loss of their lives. But the world didn't give them their life. So even if they are killed, and Jesus warns them, that's going to happen. Jesus is offering them what? The crown of life. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It's, there's, Jesus takes away the sting of death. We've got to think about it, though. What, uh, this is why Jesus can say, do not fear, be faithful unto death. When, we, when fear is removed, then we start to flourish in life. That's when we start to flourish. If we constantly live our lives in fear, we, we're, we're paralyzed. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. But when fear is removed, then we start to flourish in life. And I don't mean flourishing with material possessions. I mean flourishing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the flourishing I'm talking about. Flourishing in relationships, reconciling with others, flourishing in loving our neighbors and our enemies, flourishing in, in building up others and encouraging them. That's how we flourish. It, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. In my 55 years on this earth, I cannot remember a time when I felt more persecuted as a Christian right now in the, in the current culture that we're living in. Honestly, and I, forgive me if I've said this before, I forget, but I cringe every time someone I've just met asks me what I do for a living. Because I have to tell them I'm a pastor. It used to be a respected profession. I don't think it's very respected anymore. You know? Now, I know that we, what we face here in America, in terms of persecution and so forth, is, is nothing uh, compared to the physical, emotional, and spiritual persecution that the Christians were facing in Smyrna. I don't, I don't think that we face the same kind of things or even some of the things that our brothers and sisters around the world today face, okay? I think we, we face different types of persecution, okay? So I wouldn't, you know, I'm not trying to compare that. I, although I think it is real what we face. And there's no doubt that we no longer live in a society based on Christian values. The majority of our culture is anti-Christian at this point. All you have to do is read the news, talk to your neighbor, watch TV, uh, know what legislation is being passed to see that we, as well as every other country in the world, really, has abandoned any foundation of morality at all. And this could lead us to despair. Oh, thanks, Fletch. This is great, great. This is really uplifting. I thought you were going to talk about flourishing. Get in there. Okay? It could lead us to despair and we would say, oh no, we're, being, we're losing the culture war or our, cult, or our country's in moral decline and there's no hope at all. But the truth is that what we're experiencing is nothing new. Okay, it's nothing new. The culture of the world in the first century uh, under the rule of Rome when Revelation was written, when Jesus said these words, was a hundred times worse than what we are experiencing today. We, we have no idea what they were going through and the culture that they lived in. 
But one thing has remained. God's church continues to grow and flourish. Isn't that amazing? Need I remind you that Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church tends to grow during times of persecution. I can't speak for the data of other churches in our area, but our church is growing. Spring Run is growing. What seems to be ironic is that we are one of the most conservative churches that exists. It seems weird to me. I often ask people who are new to Spring Run, why are they here? You know, like, you're at a PCA church. You know that, right? Oftentimes, the answer is because you teach the Bible. I'm thinking to myself, what else would we teach or talk about? I don't know of any others. I don't know of anything else that gives me the truth about life. The truth about God and who, who he is and, and who I am and what he wants me to do to glorify him and to flourish in this world. I don't know what else to use. God's truth as found in the Bible is obviously offensive to some but refreshing and life-giving to others. It is refreshing and life-giving to those who believe that since God created life, then he knows the best way to live life. And that is a life lived for his glory. And that only happens because God sent his son Jesus to die for a rebellious people so that we could be reconciled and redeemed back to him. So we flourish in our relationship with God, even in an offensive culture. When our posture is to be humbled before a holy God, then we flourish. When our posture is to be prideful toward a holy God, then we fail. When we flourish in the ways we've talked about, it impacts our culture. Think about this for a second. Why does that juicy steak that you get at a restaurant, at a fine restaurant, taste so good? Why is that? It's because they put so much salt on that steak. You would never put that much salt at home on your steak. That's why it's so good. That's why things taste better in a restaurant. They put so much salt on it. What did Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth. Meaning you bring flavor and delicious taste to the people around you. When the church lives out its biblical mandates, the world is made a better place and is preserved. It's as simple as that. That's why the church has continued to grow and flourish throughout the ages. Who doesn't want to be around a person like Elisa Adams? Full of joy, loving, kind, generous, and faithful. And you know what she does regularly? She goes down to the abortion clinic and prays for the women and babies who are coming and going with some of her friends. That's what she does. She's flourishing in a culture that is anti-Christian. We all know that's a, a huge issue, moral issue in our culture right now, abortion. And she's going to fight it by praying because it's a spiritual battle. 
We may think we are losing the battle in many ways, but the battle belongs to the Lord. We fight the battle by flourishing in culture, by flourishing in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own communities, in our churches, in the organizations that we're a part of, in our neighborhood. We don't allow the world's agenda to distract us from God's agenda. We don't get embroiled in fighting against culture and defending what we believe. Instead, we go on the offensive. Not to be offensive, but we go on the offensive. Loving people unconditionally. Praying for our enemies. And sprinkling the salt of the gospel everywhere we go. And in every relationship and interaction that we have. He Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We are conquerors because Jesus has gone before us. He is the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. And he will bring us into his heavenly home forever. Where we will wear the crown of life. Let us not fear, but let us flourish. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these words. Lord, I I feel bad that the Christians in Smyrna had to go through the persecution and the slander that they had to go through, yet you used it for your purpose to advance your kingdom and your gospel, and your good news, and it comes to us today in a way in which we we ourselves find ourselves being persecuted and slandered. And so it encourages us to know that you are for us, that you are the first and the last. To know that we are loved by you and known by you. You know everything about us. And what you've called us to do is not to fear, but to flourish. May we flourish in our relationships. May we flourish, Lord, in the hope that you give us through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.